0: Chapter twenty seven, part one of Belinda. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. Belinda by Maria Edgeworth. Chapter twenty seven, part one. A discovery. Instead of the open childish, affectionate familiarity, with which Virginia used to meet Clarence Hervey, she now received him with reserved timid embarrassment. Struck by this change in her manner, and alarmed by the dejection of her spirits, which she vainly strove to conceal, he eagerly inquired from Mrs. Ormond into the cause of this alteration. Mrs. Ormond's answers, and her account of all that had passed during his absence, increased his anxiety. His indignation was roused by the insult which Virginia had been offered by the strangers who had scaled the garden-wall. All his endeavours to discover who they were proved ineffectual, but, lest they should venture to repeat their visit, he removed her from Windsor, and took her directly to Twickenham. Here he stayed with her and Mrs. Ormond some days to determine by his own observation— how far the representations that had been made to him were just. Till this period he had been persuaded that Virginia's regard for him was rather that of gratitude than of love. And with this opinion he thought that he had no reason seriously to reproach himself for the imprudence with which he had betrayed the partiality that he felt for her in the beginning of their acquaintance. He flattered himself that even should she have discerned his intentions, her heart would not repine at any alteration in his sentiments, and if her happiness were uninjured, his reason told him that he was not in honour bound to constancy. The case was now altered. Unwilling as he was to believe, he could no longer doubt. Virginia could neither meet his eyes nor speak to him without a degree of embarrassment which she had not sufficient art to conceal. She trembled whenever he came near her, and, if he looked grave or forbore to take notice of her, she would burst into tears. At other times, contrary to the natural indolence of her character, she would exert herself to please him with surprising energy. She learned everything that he wished. Her capacity seemed suddenly to unfold. For an instant Clarence flattered himself that both her fits of melancholy and of exertion might arise from a secret desire to see something of that world from which she had been secluded. One day he touched upon this subject to see what effect it would produce, but contrary to his expectations she seemed to have no desire to quit her retirement. She did not wish, she said, for amusements such as he described— she did not wish to go into the world. It was during the time of his passion for her that Clarence had her picture painted in the character of St. Pierre's Virginia. It happened to be in the room in which they were now conversing, and when she spoke of loving a life of retirement, Clarence accidentally cast his eyes upon the picture, and then upon Virginia. She turned away, sighed deeply, and when in a tone of kindness he asked her if she were unhappy, she hid her face in her hands and made no answer. Mr. Hervey could not be insensible to her distress, or to her delicacy. He saw her bloom fading daily, her spirits depressed, her existence a burden to her, and he feared that his own imprudence had been the cause of all this misery. I have taken her out of a situation in which she might have spent her life usefully and happily. I have excited false hopes in her mind, and now she is a wretched and useless being. I have won her affections, her happiness depends totally upon me, and can I forsake her? Mrs. Orman says that she is convinced Virginia would not survive the day of my marriage with another. I am not disposed to believe that girls often die or destroy themselves for love, nor am I a coxcomb enough to suppose that love for me must be extraordinarily desperate. But here's a girl who is of a melancholy temperament, who has a great deal of natural sensibility, whose affections have all been concentrated, who has lived in solitude, whose imagination has dwelt for a length of time upon a certain set of ideas, who has but one object of hope. In such a mind, and in such circumstances, passion may rise to a paradoxism of despair. Pity, generosity, and honor made him resolve not to abandon this unfortunate girl, though he felt that every time he saw Virginia, his love for Belinda increased. It was this struggle in his mind betwixt love and honor, which produced all the apparent inconsistency and irresolution that puzzled Lady Delacour and perplexed Belinda. The lock of beautiful hair which so unluckily fell at Belinda's feet was Virginia's. He was going to take it to the painter who had made the hair in her picture considerably too dark. How this picture got into the exhibition must now be explained." whilst mr hervey's mind was in that painful state of doubt which has just been described a circumstance happened that promised him some relief from his embarrassment mr morton the clergyman who used to read prayers every sunday for mrs ormond and virginia did not come one sunday at the usual time the next morning he called on mr hervey with a face that showed he had something of importance to communicate i have hopes my dear clarence said he that i have found out your virginia's father yesterday a musical friend of mine persuaded me to go with him to hear the singing at the asylum for children in st george's fields there is a girl there who has indeed a charming voice but that's not the present purpose after church was over i happened to be one of the last that stayed For I am too old to love bustling through a crowd. Perhaps, as you are impatient, you think that's nothing to the purpose, and yet it is, as you shall hear. When the congregation had almost left the church, I observed that the children of the asylum remained in their places, by order of one of the governors, and a middle-aged gentleman went round amongst the elder girls, examined their countenances with care, and inquired with much anxiety their ages, and every particular relative to their parents. The stranger held a miniature picture in his hand, with which he compared each face. I was not near enough to him, continued Mr. Morton, to see the miniature distinctly, but from the glimpse I caught of it I thought that it was like your Virginia, though it seemed to be the portrait of a child but four or five years old. I understand that this gentleman will be at the asylum again next Sunday. I heard him express a wish to see some of the girls who happened last Sunday to be absent. Do you know this gentleman's name, or where he lives? said Clarence. I know nothing of him, replied Mr. Morton, except that he seems fond of painting, for he told one of the directors who was looking at his miniature that it was remarkably well painted and that in his happier days he had been something of a judge of the art impatient to see the stranger who he did not doubt was virginia's father clarence hervey went the next sunday to the asylum but no such gentleman appeared and all that he could learn respecting him was that he had applied to one of the directors of the institution for leave to see and question the girls in hopes of finding amongst them his lost daughter that in the course of the week he had seen all those who were not at the church the last Sunday. None of the directors knew anything more concerning him, but the porter remarked that he came in a very handsome coach, and one of the girls of the asylum said that he gave her half a guinea, because he was a little like his poor Rachel, who was dead, but that he had added, with a sigh, this cannot be my daughter, for she is only thirteen, and my girl, if she be now living, must be nearly eighteen. The age, the name, every circumstance confirmed Mr Harvey in the belief that this stranger was the father of Virginia, and he was disappointed and provoked by having missed the opportunity of seeing or speaking to him. It occurred to Clarence that the gentleman might probably visit the foundling hospital and thither he immediately went to make inquiries. He was told that a person such as he described had been there about a month before, and had compared the face of the oldest girls with a little picture of a child, that he gave money to several of the girls, but that they did not know his name, or anything more about him. Mr. Hervey now inserted proper advertisements in all the papers, But without producing any effect. At last, recollecting what Mr. Morton told him of the stranger's love of pictures, he determined to put his portrait of Virginia into the exhibition, in hopes that the gentleman might go there and ask some questions about it, which might lead to a discovery. The young artist who had painted this picture was under particular obligations to Clarence, and he promised that he would faithfully comply with his request to be at Somerset House regularly every morning, as soon as the exhibition opened, that he would stay there till it closed, and watch whether any of the spectators were particularly struck with the portrait of Virginia. If any person should ask questions respecting the picture, he was to let Mr. Hervey know immediately, and to give the inquirer his address." now it happened that the very day when lady delacour and belinda were at the exhibition the painter called clarence aside and informed him that a gentleman had just inquired from him very eagerly whether the picture of virginia was a portrait this gentleman proved to be not the stranger who had been at the asylum but an eminent jeweller who told mr hervey that his curiosity about the picture arose merely from its striking likeness to a miniature, which had been lately left at his house to be new set. It belonged to a Mr. Hartley, a gentleman who had made a considerable fortune in the West Indies, but who was prevented from enjoying his affluence by the loss of an only daughter, of whom the miniature was a portrait, taken when she was not more than four or five years old. When Clarence heard all this, he was extremely impatient to know where Mr. Hartley was to be found. But the jeweller could only tell him that the miniature had been called for the preceding day by Mr. Hartley's servant, who said his master was leaving town in a great hurry to go to Portsmouth to join the West India fleet, which was to sail with the first favorable wind. Clarence determined immediately to follow him to Porthmouth, He had not a moment to spare, for the wind was actually favourable, and his only chance of seeing Mr. Hartley was by reaching Portsmouth as soon as possible. This was the cause of his taking leave of Belinda in such an abrupt manner. Painful indeed were his feelings at that moment, and great the difficulty he felt in parting with her, without giving any explanation of his conduct, which must have appeared to her capricious and mysterious he was aware that he had explicitly avowed to lady delacour his admiration of miss portman and that in a thousand instances he had betrayed his passion yet of her love he dared not trust himself to think whilst his affairs were in this doubtful state he had it is true some faint hopes that a change in virginia's situation Might produce an alteration in her sentiments, and he resolved to decide his own conduct by the manner in which she should behave, if her father should be found and she should become heiress to a considerable fortune. New views might then open to her imagination, the world, the fashionable world, in all its glory, would be before her, her beauty and fortune would attract a variety of admirers and clarence thought that perhaps her partiality for him might become less exclusive when she had more opportunities of choice if her love arose merely from circumstances with circumstances it would change if it were only disease of the imagination induced by her seclusion from society it might be cured by mixing with the world and then he should be at liberty to follow the dictates of his own heart and declare his attachment to Belinda. But if he should find that change of situation made no alteration in Virginia's sentiments, if her happiness should absolutely depend upon the realization of those hopes which he had imprudently excited, he felt that he should be bound to her by all the laws of justice and honor, laws which no passion could tempt him to break. Full of these ideas, he hurried to Portsmouth, in pursuit of Virginia's father. The first question he asked upon his arrival there may easily be guessed. "'Has the West India fleet sailed?' "'No, it sails to-morrow morning,' was the answer. He hastened instantly to make inquiries for Mr. Hartley. No such person could be found. No such gentleman was to be heard of anywhere.' Hartley, he was sure, was the name which the jeweller mentioned to him, but it was in vain that he repeated it. No Mr. Hartley was to be heard of at Portsmouth, except a pawnbroker. At last a steward of one of the West Indiamen recollected that a gentleman of that name came over with him in the Effingham, and that he talked of returning in the same vessel to the West Indies, if he should ever leave England again. "'But we have heard nothing of him since, sir,' said the steward. "'No passage is taken for him with us.' "'And my life to China Orange,' cried the sailor, who was standing by. "'He's gone to kingdom come, or more likely to Bedlam, afore this, for he was plaguy crazy in his timbers, and his head wanted writing, I take it, if it was he, Jack, who used to walk the deck, you know, with a bit of a picture in his hand.' to which he seemed to be mumbling his prayers from morning to night there's no use in sounding for him master he's down in davy's locker long ago or stowed into the tight waistcoat before this time o day notwithstanding this knowing sailor's opinion clarence would not desist from his sounding because having so lately heard of him at different places he could not believe that he was gone either into davy's locker or to bedlam He imagined that by some accident Mr. Hartley had been detained upon the road to Portsmouth, and in the expectation that he would certainly arrive before the fleet should sail. Clarence waited with tolerable patience. He waited, however, in vain. He saw the Effingham, and the whole fleet sail. No, Mr. Hartley arrived. As he hailed one of the boats of the Effingham, which was rowing out with some passengers, who had been too late to get on board. His friend, the sailor, answered, "Why, have no crazy man here. I told you, master, he'd never go out no more in the Effingham. He's where I said, master, you'll find, or nowhere.' Mr. Hervey remained some days at Portsmouth after the fleet had sailed, in hopes that he might yet obtain some information. But none could be had. Neither could any farther tidings be obtained from the jeweller, who had first mentioned mr hartley despairing of success in the object of his journey he however determined to delay his return to town for some time in hopes that absence might efface the impression which had been made on the heart of virginia he made a tour along the picturesque coasts of dorset and devonshire and it was during this excursion that he wrote the letters to lady delacour which have so often been mentioned. He endeavoured to dissipate his thoughts by new scenes and employments, but all his ideas involuntarily centred in Belinda. If he saw new characters, he compared them with hers, or considered how far she would approve or condemn them. The books that he read were perused with a constant reference to what she would think or feel and during his whole journey he never beheld any beautiful prospect without wishing that it could at the same instant be seen by belinda if her name were mentioned but once in his letters it was because he dared not trust himself to speak of her she was for ever present to his mind but while he was writing to lady delacour her idea pressed more strongly upon his heart he recollected that it was she Who first gave him a just insight into her ladyship's real character? He recollected that she had joined with him in the benevolent design of reconciling her to Lord Delacour, and of creating in her mind a taste for domestic happiness. This remembrance operated powerfully to excite him to fresh exertions, and the eloquence which touched Lady Delacour so much in these edifying letters, as she called them, was in fact inspired by Belinda. Whenever he thought distinctly upon his future plans, Virginia's attachment, and the hopes which he had imprudently inspired, appeared insuperable obstacles to his union with Miss Portman. But in more sanguine moments he flattered himself with a confused notion that these difficulties would vanish. Great, his surprise and alarm when he received the letter of lady delacour's in which she announced the probability of belinda's marriage with mr vincent in consequence of his moving from place to place in the course of his tour he did not receive this letter till nearly a fortnight after it should have come to his hands the instant he received it he set out on his way home he travelled with all that expedition which money can command in england his first thought and first wish when he arrived in town were to go to lady delacour's but he checked his impatience and proceeded immediately to twickenham to have his fate decided by virginia it was with the most painful sensations that he saw her again the accounts which he received from mrs ormond convinced him that absence had produced none of the effects which he expected on the mind of her pupil. Mrs. Ormond was naturally both of an affectionate disposition and a timid temper. She had become excessively fond of Virginia, and her anxiety was more than in proportion to her love. It sometimes balanced and even overbalanced her regard and respect for Clarence Hervey himself. When he spoke of his attachment to Belinda, and of his doubts respecting Virginia, She could no longer restrain her emotion. Oh indeed, Mr Harvey, said she, this is no time for reasoning and doubting. No man in his senses, no man who is not willfully blind, could doubt her being distractedly fond of you. I'm sorry for it, said Clarence. And why? Oh why, Mr Harvey? Don't you recollect the time when you were all impatience to call her yours? "'when you thought her the most charming creature in the whole world. "'I had not seen Belinda Portman then. "'And I wish to heaven you never had seen her. "'But, oh, surely, Mr. Harvey, you will not desert my Virginia. "'Must her health, her happiness, her reputation, all be the sacrifice?' "'Reputation, Mrs. Ormond?' "'Reputation, Mr. Harvey.' You do not know in what as light she is considered here, nor did I till lately. But I tell you her reputation is injured, fatally injured. It is whispered and more than whispered everywhere that she is your mistress. A woman came here the other day with the bullfinch, and she looked at me and spoke in such an extraordinary way that I was shocked more than I can express. I need not tell you all the particulars." it is enough that i have made inquiries and am sure too sure of what i say that nothing but your marriage with virginia can save a reputation or mrs ormond stopped short for at this instant virginia entered the room walking in her slow manner as if she were in a deep reverie since my return said clarence in an embarrassed voice i have scarcely heard a syllable from miss st pierre's lips miss st pierre he used to call me virginia said she turning to mrs ormond he is angry with me he used to call me virginia but you were a child then you know my love said mrs ormond and i wish i was still a child said virginia then after a long pause she approached mr hervey with extreme timidity and opening a portfolio which lay on the table She said to him, If you are at leisure, if I do not interrupt you, would you look at these drawings, though they are not worth your seeing, except as proofs that I can conquer my natural indolence? The drawings were views which she had painted from memory of scenes in the new forest near her grandmother's cottage. That cottage was drawn with an exactness that proved how fresh it was in her remembrance. Many recollections rushed forcibly into Clarence Hervey's mind at the sight of this cottage. The charming image of Virginia as it first struck his fancy, the smile, the innocent smile, with which she offered him the finest rose in her basket, the stern voice in which her grandmother spoke to her, the prophetic fears of her protectress, the figures of the dying woman, the solemn promise he made to her all recurred in rapid succession to his memory. "'You don't seem to like that,' said Virginia, and then putting another drawing into his hands, "'perhaps this may please you better.' "'They are beautiful. They are surprisingly well done,' exclaimed he. "'I knew he would like them. I told you so,' cried Mrs. Ormond, in a triumphant tone. "'You see,' said Virginia, that though you have heard scarcely a syllable from miss st pierre's lips since your return yet she has not been unmindful of your wishes in your absence you told her some time ago that you wished she would try to improve in drawing she has done her best but do not trouble yourself to look at them any longer said virginia taking one of her drawings from his hand i merely wanted to show you that though i have no genius "'I have some—' Her voice faltered, so that she could not pronounce the word gratitude. Mrs. Ormond pronounced it for her, and added, "'I can answer for it that Virginia is not ungrateful.' "'Ungrateful?' repeated Clarence. "'Whoever thought her so? Why did you put these ideas into her mind?' Virginia, resting her head on Mrs. Ormond's shoulder— Wept bitterly. End of chapter twenty seven, part one, read by Lars Rolander.